Welcome to Pod Clubhouse Press Pass, your one-stop shop podcast where we take you behind the scenes with coverage of festivals, cons, and live events. We're in the middle of our continuing coverage for Season 10 of the ATX TV Festival. This episode we're doing today is giving you the Day 4 Roundup from ATX. The festival, which is still all virtual this year, and hopefully for the last time, it runs until June 20th, and you still have time. You can go buy your badges at atxfestival.com. On today's ATX Roundup, Sheila's back tonight to discuss today's panel, TV Mixtapes, an inside look at the unique process of constructing TV's catchiest, funniest, and most moving original songs with the geniuses behind them. But before we get to TV Mixtapes, here are the other panels from today. Indigenize the Narrative, a conversation with the Native American and Indigenous actors, writers, directors, and producers that are recentering Indigenous storytelling and producing dynamic TV in the process. Also, a panel called Television in an Era of Racial Reckoning, a panel presented by the ACLU, bringing TV producers and writers together to discuss how to repair inequitable systems and build a future through storytelling, both on and off the screen and TV today. And last, what ended the tonight's uh, day four, Oz, a retrospective. This retrospective will dive into the series' unique narrative, structure, and feature a conversation with the series' cast and creatives. That one is strange to me because the series premiered in 1997. So I don't know why they're doing a 24-year retrospective. You would think 25 sounds like the better number, but I don't know. Maybe they were just so excited to get people from Oz back together. Who knows? Yo, 24 is the new 25. I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) 24 is the new 25. Kiefer Sutherland's been saying it for years. Well, you know that sound. That is Sheila McGann. She's back tonight, folks. She was here last night to talk about the Younger podcast, and she's back today on day four to tell us all about TV mixtapes, colon, original songs. Give us a lowdown, Sheila. What was this panel about? Who was there? What did we miss for those that didn't get get to catch it? And uh, if you do have access to it, should people go watch it? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. Uh, thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. This was actually a really fun panel. This was uh, an hour-long panel. Uh, Dan Feinberg was moderating. He's the chief TV critic for The Hollywood Reporter. And on the panel, we it was a big panel, Mike. It, there was like six... Yeah, there were six talents and creatives on this panel talking about all things music and creative, the creative process behind it, what inspired them. So- and from shows you've heard of too. It's not oh, like, yeah, like it's not like they found like you know cable access at midnight shows. These are like oh, pretty no. big deal. Yeah, yeah. yeah there, there's Girls Five Eva from Peacock. There, we are Lady Parts from Peacock. You have the other two, which is heading over to HBO Max. Um, you have Lauren Bouchard who did Bob's Burgers, and he's now representing Central Park, which is now on Apple TV. And you had Siddhartha Koshla from um, This Is Us. Yeah. So I mean, you have some some big heavy hitters, and uh, it was like I said, it was a big panel. And they all had such interesting things to say that this panel really should have been like maybe an hour and a half, like just to give everybody enough airtime to to share the wonderful content that was here. Like it was just like this was like the appetizer. And like we could have like done like with another course uh, to, to get all the good stuff in here. People, especially if you're a music fan, if you're a music fan and a TV fan, uh, original songs used, you know, as underscore during a show, theme songs, theme music, that this is not even licensing. This is not like other real songs in the world that the show licenses. This is actual music created for shows. It's it's a treasure trove of information and inspiration and what the process is. Uh, I, I'm a little jealous. I'm going to go try and catch this one on replay because I was a little jealous that you got to see this one. Uh, 
uh, I mean, I'm happy for you. Uh, yeah, but no, <laughs> this, this was one during the week that was definitely on my asterisk uh, list that I wanted to catch. Oh yeah, go check it out for sure. I mean, it doesn't have a long um, shelf life in the uh, in the the video on demand room, but uh, yeah, definitely go check it out. But just budget yourself an hour or so. Yeah, so you and I were talking. You said because of how many panelists were on here trying to get everyone to answer, there weren't actually that many questions. So why don't you walk us through uh, those questions and maybe if any interesting answers came out of it. So they opened up with a fun little homage and discourse on B.J. Thomas's Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head, iconically from the same movie that he sang, that title song. And it was, I didn't know, I didn't actually know that it was composed by Burt Bacharach. And I was just like, oh, once they said that, I was like, yes, that is absolutely Burt Bacharach uh, joint. And they they talked, it was cute. It was a cute way to open the panel because there's a lot of, I guess, strong feelings, whether this was an asset to the movie or if it was, you know, uh, sort of a, a funnily placed trope. Um, I, I guess there's lots of Twitter wars about this. I'm going to have to go look this up in my spare time when I'm an insomniac later tonight. Um, but just as a good example of how integral a good original song is to a piece of TV or film. And they had some fun examples for that. So the, actually the, the first question that Dan kicked off for them was what are some of the more memorable uses of songs in, in TV shows and movies from their experience? I guess like things that would have been influential to them as they went through. And some of the things that came out were just like, like oh, these are really good head nodders. Cause you're just like, yes, you can go back to that. Cat Stevens songs used in Harold and Maud, Simon and Garfunkel, the use of their songs in um, The Graduate, um, the Amy Mann song moment in Magnolia, the dream sequence from The Big Lebowski. Um, and uh, Sarah Schneider, who works on uh, the the other two, um, she was also an SNL writer. Um, so she had a very interesting take on this, too, where she talked about songs that have become so iconically linked to moments in movies like um, In Your Eyes from Say Anything, the end when Lloyd's holding up the boombox and the end of The Breakfast Club with Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me and, you know, uh, the the arm in the air. And that you can now take these, these moments of song and translate them into their own comedic skits and they stand alone just based on their, their placement in the right moment in a movie or a piece of TV. So I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, think about shows like Community or, or really anything Dan Harmon does. You know, he'll use often, he'll use song cues in parody because they become such a shorthand in our culture. You know, all you have to do is, is you know, hum in your eyes and people know you're talking about saying, hum in your eyes and put your hands Some, over your yeah, head. Somebody's put, right. like, putting their hands over their head, you know, right. mimicking a boombox. Or put your fist in the air and, you know, it's, you a know. A boombox, for those of you that are younger than, I don't know, 35, is, is a an ancient device that you used to carry with you to play music. <laughs> I think it was Sid Siddhartha who, from uh, This Is Us. He mentioned that um, Adam, the the late Adam Schlesinger, he wrote. This is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's called that you know that thing you do, the Tom Hanks movie um, that he wrote and produced and everything sure, sure. like that. Playtone Records. Thank yeah. you. You know, did I tell you guys you look great in red? Um, but Adam Schlesinger wrote the that iconic song, their one hit wonder. That he wrote that song, and like they, they had to make that as believable and as iconic as it could be as a one hit wonder and make it an earworm and make it so fantastical that you would believe that this actually existed back in the day. 
And I, A, I didn't know that he wrote that song. And yes, I, I mean, I, that was a monumental feat to make that song so catchy and so just wonderful that, not to be punny, uh, <laughs> the wonders, um, to make it, this original song be part of the lexicon of the movie as much as the acting is there. Like that song is its own presence and its own character because you hear it about 67 times. It's a bop though. I mean, that's a classic earworm that, you know, uh, three chords and a dream uh, kind of song for sure. Yeah. Get some hand claps and live Tyler and you're done. Yeah. So then basically like the, the questions were, you know, how do you write a believable sound for an original song? And it, the, the answers were, were really interesting because um, Lauren Bouchard from Central Park was saying that, you know, you have to love the genre. Like you have to be really familiar with it to become like textured in the sound and the nuance of it to make it a good fit. So he was giving an example like there's a fake boy band in Central Park and that is so not his wheelhouse. He actually said something that I'm going to take with me and I'm going to use as 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 an original of my own and pass it off as my own. He said he could not give a single shit about boy bands. So like the, the aesthetic was lost on him. The, the, all of the nuance that goes into making like a boy band, like earworm was just completely lost on him. And, you know, he had to make it believable because the, uh, cause the writers were just steeped in this fandom of, of boy bands and they could like prattle off, different boy bands and lyrics and songs and outfits that went with the videos. And he was just like, wow, that was very overwhelming. So, you know, he, he took the, the, the license that he was just like, okay, I'm not maybe the most skilled person to do this and let's bring in some experts. Um, so that was a very interesting take because that maybe the person who's doing the, the composing is not the best fit to write that actual song to make it believable. So you have to like call in, you know, like the lefty from the bullpen and Sid from this is us said, you know, it's, it's basically echoing the same thing. Like it's important to identify when you need to bring somebody else in who's maybe the better sound, the better experience for that genre that you're looking for. Like to get a Motown sound, you need to get someone who's got that sound, that talent. Um, And then sometimes you know, using the right technology was what Sid was really talking about, too. He said, you know, if you're writing a, a, something that's going to be a throwback to like the 70s, like when they're maybe doing a flashback to some of like their, their childhoods or the 80s, you know, why not record that to a quarter inch tape? So actually going to find a quarter inch tape and then getting the technology to record from modern day equipment to that to get that authentic sound. He said, you know, basically like what it costs in production may not always be worth the the expenditure, but like the payoff is really good. So he said he he attempted that at the end of the season one finale of This Is Us when they, they already knew that they had a hit on their hands. They were renewed for season two. And he was just like, I'm going to take that artistic license. I'm going to go there. I'm going to do a quarter inch tape because I need it to sound like it came from 1982. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's the debate about vinyl and does vinyl really sound so much better than CDs or cassettes or digital music? And I, I think it's debatable whether or not it sounds better, but it certainly sounds different. The, the pops and the hisses on a vinyl record is an aesthetic that that becomes part of the song. A pop and a hiss on a vinyl record when it's playing is not something, it's something you notice when you hear a clean version on a digitally remastered, you know, tape. 
Um, I actually just recently got uh, around Christmas time, I got a record player and I've slowly been rebuilding a vinyl collection that I haven't had since my parents when I was a kid. And it makes such a fucking difference. You know, listening to like who's next on vinyl is a different experience than listening to it on Spotify. Uh, So, yeah, yeah, it matters. The production value matters using the authentic materials of the time matters to to bring you back to that time. So I like that they made that point. So throwback to our pop culture review days when I covered the David Gilmore auction at uh, at Christie's and they were talking about the resurgence of vinyl and what that has meant to to fans of music from back when it was originally produced. And then also people today who may be just discovering it for the first time that Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd is has consistently been since the vinyl resurgence, the number one selling album every single year. Oh, I believe it. it again, another a- album, another record that is so mood. It, it's it's almost as much about the mood that it sets as the songs themselves. My sisters had In the Air Tonight. Um, oh, the Phil Collins, the yeah. The Phil Collins song. And their record player that they had, they had like a whole stereo system they had gotten as like a joint graduation gift. It had like an EQ um, mm-hmm. a graphic on it. And so it was not uncommon for us just to kind of lay in the dark with just the EQ meter being the only visible light in the room. Dude, go play in the air tonight. And when the, the drums kick in uh, at that, that moment, the EQ meter would just flip out. And it oh was. Oh my God. Yeah, was, I, can, I can see it. I can see it happening. It was the greatest part of my day. It was always the greatest part of my day. And you wouldn't get that same experience, you know, uh, with Spotify. My my phone doesn't make me happy like that. No, uh, it doesn't, not, it doesn't respond to the music the way that that EQ meter would. And then like you also then your visceral reaction to seeing that and feeling that. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about Jeff Richman, who's the girls five of a person on this panel. And, and I bring I, I want to single them out only because. That show captured the concept of well, girl band music, you know, mm-hmm. the the that same aesthetic from 20 years ago so so well. It made my heart happy and also sad that this was what popular music was. Like the nostalgia <laughs> in me, I was like, oh my God, that's so well done. It's such a good parody of the kind of music you'd get from then, but it's also kind of crappy and really not great music. It's really, I mean, I, I'm sure people out there love it. And it's very earwormy. It's very catchy. You understand why people can't not like sing these songs. Uh, I'm curious if they, because t- that's that's a show kind of like uh, Lady Parts that is about a music band and so music features super heavily in it. Uh, did, did he have anything to say about his process or getting in the zone of writing that style of music? Yeah, so he, he talked a bit about that and in terms of like, you know, the 90s pop and like it wasn't very good. So he wanted to try to do right by his talent in the show. I mean, you have Sarah Bareilles and you have Renee Elise Goldberry, Goldsberry, um, this well of talent. So you just want to make them shine. So he was taking what he knew about 90s pop and kind of growing it up for them to make it to make it up to their talent level. And I, I guess that was kind of a 
snide at maybe some of the 90s talent that was out there. It's better music than you would have gotten from the artists that they're parodying. It's I don't know if you've watched it yet. If not, you should. Is it the funniest show ever? No. Is it funny? Yes, it's very funny. But the entire concept is wonderful. And Sarah Bareilles and Elise and, and Busy Phillips, who I love, she's in it. And their fourth one, whose name I cannot remember at this very moment, they're wonderful in their own right, but their voices are killer. I mean, Sarah Bareilles and, and Elise uh, uh, Goldsberry, uh, their voices are so, so good. And they make, they elevate the music. The The lyrics are hysterical. They're very, very funny. Uh, the whole idea of Girls 5 Eva because it's one better than four. I mean, <laughs> it, it's it makes me laugh every single time. It's the kind of show where you want to watch the credits. It's where you watch the end credits. How many shows do you sit through and watch the end credits? Girls 5 is a show that I found myself watching the end credits for every episode because of the music, because they had like an original song at the end of every episode. So uh, Remind yeah. me, I'll come back to that when, at the last question. Uh, for um, sure. Yeah, so he was basically just figuring out what, what they could do together and just kind of giving them a framework and getting out of their way to let their, to let their talent shine and just to give them enough framework to, to kind of really make it work. So I, I have not yet watched that. I need to get a full-time job where TV watching is my full-time job because there's just so much good stuff out there right now that it's hard to see everything. Amen, sister. We're all trying to get that job. <laughs> hint, hint, yeah. advertisers. <laughs> Watch Girls 5 Eva, if nothing else, because there is a hysterical Dolly Parton-related dream sequence that will... Well, you just had me at Dolly. I love Dolly Parton. I love all yes. things Dolly, so... Yeah, it is It is a very, very, very funny sequence that plays, I think it's like episode three or four. It's very, very funny. Uh, it's not really Dolly Parton, but it's it's a Dolly Parton-esque uh, That's setup. fine. Yes, I'll take Dolly-inspired. So where else did they go? Uh, did they get into the individual like people's careers or their actual process? Because I'm interested in that. They yeah, so they they didn't really get into their careers so much, like how they got here. But like they asked, uh, so Dan asked the next question of like, what's the process of getting an original song from concept on the page to to fruition? And Sid from This Is Us, he said he knows Dan Fogelman, the showrunner for This Is Us, since they were freshmen in college. So he's like, I've known him longer than I haven't. So he knows what he's looking for. So Sid knows what Dan is looking for. He wants an earworm. He wants a good hook. He doesn't really care about the lyrics. He doesn't care about much else other than, is it memorable? Is it something that's going to stick in people's heads? And, you know, so Sid is trying to like walk the line between what he knows Dan wants and is the audience also going to like this? Like, is it appropriate for the moment? So he doesn't, he said he doesn't get a lot of support or a lot of guidance other than, you know what to do, just make it work. So he had to, he gave an example. He had to write a pop song for something like 30 years in the future. And he brought in his assistant, who's about half his age. Sid was thinking more like music is cyclical, like things just come back and they repeat themselves. And they kind of met somewhere in the middle saying, no, it's a really, it's a good melody that becomes transcendent. So they wrote a good song and then Sid let it go. And he gave it to his assistant. He goes, you're half my age, produce it to make it sound like something that's poppy today. And then like together, then they, they kind of morphed it into something in the future. So it was, you know, basically saying that I don't actually have the skills to do this and I'm going to hand the reins over to somebody else, which I thought was really, was really good. It's, it's, it's showing the mentorship that exists in this industry as well. And it's very prevalent in the music industry. Um, when you find the right mentor and you find the right mentee. 
Well, it's just yeah. refre- refreshing to hear someone being able to set aside their ego to produce the right product, which is, uh, you know, a, sometimes a rare commodity in any business, in any profession. But certainly in Hollywood, it can be it can be hard to find egoless creatures. So that's yeah. Lauren Bouchard from Central Park had a very funny answer to this process of getting an original song created from the page to to actually something that we're hearing live on television. And he said it, that we were staggeringly arrogant and stupid to think that we could pull off the musical with a capital M every episode. So what he did was he tapped into Josh Gatt, who is on that show and, and has tons and tons of Broadway experience. So he understands the process of noodling through a song to maybe make things work on stage where maybe the page, it doesn't translate the same way. So again, another example of the humility to say like, well, you might have more experience so let's let's bring you in and and make these work. And then it was funny with uh, the other two where Chris Kelly and Sarah Schneider were talking about uh, their talent. They found Chase Dreams on TikTok. So they knew he could sing and then they had to coach him in order to basically strip down songs and to understand that like this was going to be a parody and we're going to make you sound terrible and you're this fantastic singer but this is what the the storyline needs. So this is almost like reverse engineering the song to make it sound terrible from something that sounds wonderful. So just getting to understand how they can use music and, and how they have to do it in so many different ways, it's very, very hard. And then Nita Manzor from uh, from Lady Parts, she was talking about the, 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 the process of trying to like form this punk band that they have and like how it was hard. Did they describe that show at all? Because for, for people who don't know, I, I'll let you, I'll let you take the lead if they discussed it. If not, I only, only because in doing the, they what's really coming. Didn't. Okay. So, yeah, so, so, give it- so it's a punk band, uh, you know, featuring four, I think it's four Muslim women. Yes. And that, that's the angle of the show. And it's going to be a Peacock, I believe comedy. Uh, yes, it's a comedy. Uh, yeah, it's a comedy coming to Peacock. It's an original series, but that's the hook. It's, it's a punk band for, and their and their travels, but the band is named Lady Parts, and they are like four Muslim women. So. Yes, exactly. So you know their their process was very hard because they had to find actors who could do both the musicality part of it and the comedy part of it. So they were trying to find the perfect mix, and then they ended up finding this this great group of women. Their rehearsal period ended up being so long that they they really took to their instruments, they took to their parts, and they they were beyond needing the backing track. So they they found this right mix and then they made them good. And then Sid from This Is Us had a really great story. He had Mandy Moore and um, Brian Tyree Henry to work with. So Mandy Moore, we all know she's a fantastic singer and she's become a very fantastic actress over the years. And then Brian Tyree Henry is Broadway trained. So he had this, this just wonderful platform to work with these multi-talented actors who could do so many different things and and morph themselves into these different characters and so his challenge was to try to write a song for the character as opposed to the the performer that he knew so he actually took um he worked with taylor goldsmith who is mandy moore's husband to write her song for this is us and when he got to Brian Tyree Henry, he was just like, this guy can sing anything. So, you know, he was able to just adapt his acting style to to match the song style. So it, it was just very interesting because he almost had to, I, I, this was another act of reverse engineering of saying, I, I have to undo what I know 
about these performers to actually write something that works for the show of who they are in the show, as opposed to who I know them to be. So it was just, it's just fascinating to hear just how they, how they try to figure this stuff out and, and understand the challenges that exist. Like we would just take for granted, like with lady parts, like, well, how hard could it be to find actors that can sing? Can't they all do that? Cause isn't that like the whole notion of like the triple threat, but to find somebody who's musical and funny is I guess a little bit of a, of a harder sell. So, I mean, but I mean, the payoff is great because they, they show clips of each of the shows and they have the, the lady parts, you know, punk band doing their performance and they frankly sound wonderful. So it's definitely something to, to seek out and, and see the finished product for me now. And then the final question ended up being like, when does, so Dan was asking, when does the business side of things kick in for music like this with an Apple music or Spotify as promotional devices, just beyond what's used in the producing of trailers and commercials. So there was like lots of talk about how sometimes with these musical numbers, they're not full songs. Like, so for Central Park, for instance, they're like 30 second little snippets. The, the the pull or the allure of that of putting together like an album or a playlist becomes a bit of a challenge because then you have to extend these songs that were never meant to be much more than the 30 to 40 seconds that they are in the, in the show to make it more. So it kind of, so Lauren Bouchard was saying it kind of, some of them kind of feel forced. And he also has a, a, a line of skeptability about like how some of these songs could stand alone. Like it's almost like they need the the backdrop of the show and what you're seeing visually in order to sort of complement the lyrics. But that he was kind of overruled and they wanted to put out an album. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, because there's always like this, you know, ability to cross promote. And if something just comes across people's eyes as they're scrolling through iTunes or Spotify, then it'd be like, hey, I haven't seen that. Or maybe I need to like bump that up in my in my watch list. Hey man, I had the Simpsons sing the blues on cassette when I was a kid. Like Uh, take all all my money TV show. Uh, One of my favorite soundtracks remains the Heights. Uh, This canceled TV show that no one remembers. Was it like one season, right? Yeah. uh, yeah, I believe it was exactly like that. I I still have that. Everyone knows one song out of it became bigger. How do you talk to an angel? That's a podcast. Mike saying it (laughs) is a podcast. Podcast now. <laughs> uh, I mean, that song became actually really popular. Uh, and then uh, Jamie, what the fuck was his name? Jamie something. Oh, it was Jamie something or other, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he ended up actually having a little bit of like a like a two-hit career because he he then found a stint on uh, Beverly Hills 90210. But he was from the Heights and and, and How Do You Talk to an Angel came and out of the And he was in a movie called Shout with John Travolta and Heather Graham. Uh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> anyway, yeah. I mean, so a movie, uh, TV show soundtracks of original songs is my jam. I yes. love them. Except for Copper. Rock. Cop Rock was trash. So in Girls 5 Eva, the um, the credits. So this is what I wanted to come back to from what you mentioned earlier about like, you know, who else watches the credits? But, you know, for opportunities to see these full length songs, that's where Jeff Richman was saying that this is the opportunity for them to kind of extend those songs that appear in the show. It, again, it was never meant to be this full like two minute and 30 second or three minute song. So they're trying to extend it out to the 90 seconds of, of the credits. And they're doing this all in ADR sessions. And it's basically like just one big sort of like, you know, think tank to kind of figure out like, well, what's the next verse, you know? So they, they tended to do a lot of those extensions in ADR sessions. So it was challenging to bring those songs from 
the 30 seconds that it lived in the, in the, in the episode to see what the, the vision of the, the end of that song would be or the beginning, depending on how the song was used. You know, there was a, a, you know, a shout out to musical supervisors, how they're so integral to the process. It's about the score soundtrack, about trying to figure out like how, how things need to flow into each other. Uh, It's not just like one song is a standalone. There's, there's usually like a, a theme an, an overarching theme that has mm-hmm. to kind of like run a thread through everything. And you kind of need somebody kind of standing at the back, kind of saying, you know, guiding this process. So Sarah Schneider, I'm going to wrap it up with Sarah Schneider. She had just a funny take on original songs and, you know, sort of like her almost naivete when she was working in SNL. She said she wrote a song for Blake Shelton when he was on Saturday Night Live back in the day. And she was convinced that he was going to take the song and use it in live concerts. And she kind of threw it out in rehearsal one day. She said she was met with like live cricket sounds. She said it was just deafening, but it's, it's so good. So it was just a joke then that um, Sid thought that he thought for sure that uh, Justin Timberlake would be opening up concerts with Dick in a Box. But, you know, it's just not one of those things that uh, that necessarily translates out of the TV world into the real world. Though, I mean, to be fair, he owes a lot of his popularity to that song specifically and to, and to, to his appearances on, on SNL. That's what really sold him as maybe not even someone who can act, but someone who was funny, someone who... And very versatile. Yeah. In yes. the acting realm. Yeah, not so, that he's not versatile anywhere about, but within the acting realm itself, that he could pivot between acting and performance and then performance acting. Yeah, well, just being able to do comedy, just, hey, that guy's funny. Because, like, like we said, there a lot of people can act, uh, and maybe not act well, but a lot of people can quote-unquote act. Uh, it is a much smaller Venn diagram of people who can do comedy and then even smaller of who can do comedy and sing, like we talked about before. Right. So when he's able to do Dick in a Box and make everyone laugh and really sell it, and that, I mean, that whole thing, the song is funny, but the whole skit is really, really funny. It, it, and every time you watch it, it's one of those things that really doesn't get old. That's That gives him street cred. So he may want to yeah. deny it and not do it in concert. That's fine. But he's a fool. He's a damn fool if he ever like disavows it. He owes a ton to that. So Absolutely. Um, I've seen him in concert. He does not do Dick in a Box in concert. So well, I'm, I'm not judging you for seeing him in concert. Well, uh, he's fantastic. He's fantastic live. So. Judge I, away. I don't care. <laughs> all right. Final wrap up for you. What was a question that didn't get asked that if you had been on the panel or you had been the moderator, you would have wanted to ask? I would have liked to have like, known like what their influences were, like where they came from, like what, what goes into their creative process themselves. Sid's room, I wanted to just mention this, like his room that he recorded from, this was pre-recorded on Zoom. It, I feel like this was his workspace. There were guitars hanging on the wall. There was like, uh, you know, f- some foam boards in the back, up on the like foam panels, like up on the, the back wall. Um, I would have liked to have known like, sort of like when they 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 get a script, they get the, the creative storyboards, you know, how do they just start this? Like what's their, what's their process? And I would have liked to have known like, you know, where they came from, like who their influences were. Like Nita Manzor was really the only one who said that, you know, Bollywood was like a really big influence for her. And I was just like, yes, yes, I want more of that. I, I love origin stories. And it's it's very much like an overarching theme in anything that you and I kind of talk about or myself and any of the other folks in Pod Club as I talk about. I like to know where things come from. 
And I like to know how that process gets there. I, I like I like sometimes like peeking behind the curtain, a little bit of behind the scenes activity. Yeah, I agree. That's I, I live for that kind of I live. Give me that information. That's what I want to see. You know, you could you can dig around and find out basically everything else on the Internet. You know, you can't get that behind yeah. the scenes anywhere else. Like so. when the flashback movie cut, like the flashback sounds like, yes, this is what I'm living for. <laughs> uh, man, this sounds like it was definitely a panel worth going and watching. If you guys haven't already go to ATXFestival.com to buy your badges so you can try and access this panel before it disappears yeah. uh, and uh, and if not well if you do miss it you know what there's still six days of ATX TV festival season 10 to uh, watch so you should definitely go buy a badge anyway and join in on the fun so these daily roundups make more sense to you yes and they did promise that this would be back uh, next year as a panel as well because this one was very well talent wise it was very well attended talent wise we had like I said we had six creatives and yeah. uh, composers. So uh, write to the people at ATX and say, make this one longer because there's yeah. so much good content to share. And I feel like we only scratched the surface with an hour. Looking ahead to tomorrow, day five at ATX, there's going to be three panels and one screening at 5.30 Central Time. All of these times are in Central because Austin is in the Central Time Zone. Uh, at 5.30, we have The Republic of Sarah, a conversation with the creator and showrunners, as well as members of the cast and the series director. They're also giving you an early look at episode two. Why not episode one? Well, Republic of Sarah actually premieres tomorrow. So you can go watch the episode one, your damn self. They go check out the uh, the panel uh, at uh, 5.30. At 6.15, Essential Stories, Medical Series Approach a Real-Life Pandemic. This is a panel, it's a conversation exploring the challenges, logistics, and emotional reality of producing a medical drama throughout the pandemic. There's always a balance of, you know, how much is too much? How much are we going to burn out people talking about COVID on TV if they have to watch COVID stories and also live it? So that's what that panel is about. At 7.15, there is In Treatment Official FYC Conversation. This one is actually really interesting because for the first time in partnership with HBO and the Television Academy, the ATX TV Festival will feature an official Emmy Awards for your consideration conversation for the new season of In Treatment, which will be available simultaneously for Academy members and festival attendees to watch. So that's a pretty big deal for ATX and the Emmys. So. And the night is ending at 8.15. 15, uh, uh, there's going to be a screening of the unaired pilot for the LA Confidential television series adaptation from the 2018 pilot season. It was made, it was never aired, it was never shown. For real? Uh, yep. Following the screening, there's going to be a virtual Q&A conversation with the cast and the creatives from that never went anywhere project. So I, oh, I, I feel like this is like it, like from the vault. That's cool. It's very from the vault. So I'm definitely going to be checking that one out, I think. And I'm also going to be looking at Republic of Sarah because that show is on my radar. Uh, I'm excited for that one. So uh, day five roundup. Hopefully you'll be hearing from me on those. And if anyone else is uh, at the clubhouse is catching anything else, you'll hear from them too. So thank you guys for listening so much. Sheila, thanks for coming on again tonight to talk about TV mixtapes, original songs. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And don't forget to head to Apple uh, Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe to all of Pod Clubhouse's uh, podcast feeds. And if you could leave us a five-star rating, that would be most appreciated. And if nothing else, keep tuning in for all of your live festival coverage. Talk to you tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. 
Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.